0: We want to take our Bibles this morning, turn to the little book of the Old Testament, Habakkuk. Now, I know that uh, maybe you followed some pastors and you have some favorite ones on, uh, you know, the, um, your iPod or whatever, whatever you're playing these days. But, uh, and some people call it Habakkuk instead of Habakkuk. So, why do they do that? Because we have no idea how to pronounce this guy's name. We just don't. Most people sort of say Habakkuk, so that's the, that's the way I'm doing it, so I won't have to explain that every Sunday, okay? But we want to take our Bibles and turn to uh, Habakkuk, I mean uh, Habakkuk, and um, as we do, we're in a series of messages. We begin this series of messages last week, and um, we'll praise the Lord for what He's done in our church, and I tell you, we had a great day yesterday. just, I don't want to, I want to go past and not remember that because uh, we had this Harvest hoopla, okay. Uh, how many of you were involved in that at all? I mean, you worked in that all over the auditorium. We had about, we had pretty close to 600 children come, and uh, about 12 to 1500 people total during the day. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? And uh, got you know just seeds of the gospel, but also just having a really good time. Uh, for the kids. And so we had a great day yesterday. Well, how long must I wait? That's the title of the message. And you say, wow, pastor, if you could answer that question for me, it'd be worth me coming to church. Well, let's see what we can do. Because really, when you think about it, we spend our life waiting. You know, we wait at the grocery store. We wait in line at, um, at, um, at certain venues that we go into. We wait in line in traffic Many of you are on I-4 or the 417 every single day during rush hour, and I've traveled that route a few times during rush hour, and I know how much you have to wait, and if there's a wreck or something that happens, boy, you, just, you can wait all day, and maybe you feel like I do and, and feel like this couple uh, as you wait your life through. Let's roll the... Flash is the fastest guy in there. You need something done, he's on it. I hope so. We are really fighting the clock, and every minute counts. Wait. They're all sloths? You said this was going to be quick. Are you saying that because he's a sloth, he can't be fast? I thought in Zootopia, anyone could be anything. Flash, Flash, 100-yard dash. Buddy, it's nice to see you. Nice to... see you... too. Hey, Flash, I'd love you to meet my friend. Uh, darling, I've forgotten your name. Hmm. Officer Judy Hopps, CPD, how are you? I am... doing... just... fine? as well... as... I can be. Hmm. What... Hang in there. ...can I... do... Well, I was hoping you could run a plate... For you... Well, I was hoping you could... Today. Well, I was hoping you could run a plate for us. We are in a really big hurry. Sure. What's the... plate? 29... T... Number. 29THD03. Two nine THD zero three T H D zero three H D zero three D zero three zero three Hey Flash wanna hear a joke no Well, it goes on, that scene, It kind of getting pretty famous among uh, those of us who are grandparents and other parents watching that. that Zootopia in case you're hanging on every word there and you want to see the rest of the movie, you know? But, uh, you know, we feel like that. I was talking to Jeremy Good who preached here a couple, of weeks last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he's our East Campus pastor. and We were sort of going over this passage, and he said, yeah, he laughed at himself. I, I was stopped at a red light, and I, I found myself po- uh, punching on my garage door opener to try to get it to change lights. And so, you know, life is short. Life is measured by time. You want to get all of life you can in, so why do you have to wait? And if God's so powerful, why can't He just do things right now why do we have to wait and how long do we have to wait? Look in verse two of chapter one. It says, Oh Lord, how long? How long? Well, we started this series of messages last week. Four questions that challenge our faith, a study in the book of Habakkuk. Now, why Habakkuk? Well, really, it's kind of like a miniature Job because, and really, Habakkuk's trying to find out how he can live a godly life in such an evil world. But he's he's a prophet and he's a prophet to the nation of Judah. And he's been preaching to the nation of Judah and been telling them that unless they repent of their sin, God's going to come and judge them. So God, he, he, God's not judging. He's just waiting and waiting and waiting. And I guess he sort of seems like a little foolish up there on the street corner or whatever, preaching repentance, and nobody's repenting and nothing's happening. And so he complains to God. And he says, look, God, Uh, You said that if the nation of Israel blesses you, you're going to bless them. If they don't, you're not going to bless them. But you just keep blessing them even when they're not blessing you. So what are you going to do about this? And really all Habakkuk wants to do is for God to come in and fix the situation. And this situation goes back a long way. We shared with you last week about how King David was was the king over all of Israel. And then Solomon, his son, was the same. Well, Solomon started taxing the people to get rich himself more and more, and, and he fell into to sin and started marrying a lot of people foreign, that worshiped foreign gods, brought foreign gods into the nation. And because of that, his son Rehoboam was very influenced by that. So when he took over, he made some bad decisions and split the kingdom. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel. They kept that name. The southern kingdom, Judah. Now you read in the Bible sometimes in the Old Testament about Judah this and Judah that and you're wondering, well, I guess that's just synonymous with the nation of Israel. Well, yes and no. It's only of the southern kingdom. And so what had happened about 100 years before with the northern kingdom, maybe this help you out a little bit too. There were 19 kings from the time of Rehoboam and really it was Jeroboam that took over. From Jeroboam Jer- Jeroboam until The Assyrians took over the northern kingdom. There were 19 kings. None of them were good. They were all evil. And God kept patiently waiting for them to repent. They never did. The Assyrians came in, and the Assyrians had um, a way of doing things when they conquered a nation. They were afraid. They were gathered together as a a new army, and so they scattered them everywhere. And so much of the people that we have, probably in the Jewish race all across the world— are there because of the Assyrians and how they divided up everything. The Babylonians, however, kept many of the people in the nation and then brought others to themselves, believing if they banded together, they could make more money out of them. And so different philosophies. But the northern kingdom was already gone. And Habakkuk was wondering, why doesn't Judah learn from the mistakes of the past? Because they had 20 kings during this time and eight of them were good. And every time they had a good king, God would bless. Every time they had a bad king, he would uh, not bless them at all. And so here we have the tension going on with Habakkuk. He wants God to bless the nation. But what he wants to do is for God just to come in and fix everything, just like you and I want him to fix things. And God had another idea. And God says, look, Habakkuk, i tell you what I'm going to do, but you're not going to understand it. And he says, "Well, well, try it on me. And he says, I'm going to call the Chaldeans, Babylonians, I'm going to call them in, and they're going to overtake the southern kingdom of Judah, and they're going to conquer them. And, of course, Habakkuk said, you're right, God, I have no idea why you would do that. You're going to take an evil nation, more evil than than Judah ever thought about being, and conquer that nation. He says, "I I don't agree with that, and I don't like what's going on, And now we get into the second conversation of Habakkuk. And we ask ourselves the question, how long? Well, there's three things I want you to notice in this passage. Number one, the why, then the where, and then the way. First, the why. I still don't get it. I still don't get, God, what you're trying to do. Look in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He says, Okay, God, I'm, I'm getting what you're saying a little bit. What you're going to do, you're going to bring this nation in, the Babylonian nation. You're going to come in and you're going to judge us by them and establish reproof. But then he still is confused and he's still struggling with the entire na- notion of this happening. Look in verse 13. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look on at wrong. And and this points to the cross. Remember when Jesus was hanging up on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, the father turns his back on the son because at that moment, he takes on your sins and mine on the cross at that very moment. And God was not gonna look upon sin. He cannot do that. And so why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man, more righteous than he. He says, I don't get it. I'm totally confused. God, I know you're there, but are you deaf? Are you, why are you so silent? Are you playing hide and seek with me? Now, I don't know how many of you have ever done that with your kids when they were small. But uh, we, we used to do that when our kids were small, hide and seek. I do it with my grandkids now. And I, especially like, you know, the little girls, they'll, they'll, they'll hide. And then we'll, I walk in the room and act like I, you know, I know exactly where they are. But I walk in the room and I said, ooh, I, I have no idea. I wonder where they are. And one of them will say, we're right over here, you know. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's, it's great to hide, but it's even greater to be found, right? And so, but it's more like when I hide because I'll, I'll hide and they can't, sometimes they can't find me. And they'll wonder, I don't know where Papa is. And I'll <clears throat> kind of clear my throat, rattle something in the closet so they can find me. And it's sort of like God. I'm going to be silent. I'm going to have you wait on me because I'm teaching you something. I'm maturing you in a certain way, but I'm still behind the scenes clearing my throat to let you know that I and there. So Habakkuk recognizes that. He's struggling with that. He says, On the one hand, God, you're speaking to me. On the other hand, I don't like what you're saying. And he goes on in verse 14. And he says, There's fear here. There's legitimate fear. He says, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He says, Israel, he's talking about Israel here, or Judah. He says, we're like fish, shooting fish in a barrel because he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers, gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and he's glad. This is the Babylonian kingdom. They were, they were people not only of war, but also they were fishermen as well. The Tigris and Euphrates River were right around them. Persian Gulf was right below them. And so they're very much about fishing. And so he uses fishing terms. He says, we're like fish in a net. They drag us up and they brag about it. And then in verse 16, Therefore he sacrifices to the net, makes offerings to his drag net, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Talking about Babylon. He says, here's what they're doing. They're dragging people up. They're conquering nation after nation with these great weapons that they have and their great might and their great power, military power. Then they worship their military power. God, how long are you going to allow that to keep taking place? We realize there's, there's a limit to it, and we'll come to that in just a few moments. But we get the why. You understand why he is struggling with all this, but what do we do in the meantime, however, when we're waiting? We get insight in verse 1 of chapter 2, and we look at the where. Habakkuk, talking of himself, says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. Now, um, a lot of your version says, I will take my stand on my watch. On my watch. And that's why some people feel like Habakkuk is the smallest man in the Bible. He can stand on his watch. (laughs) Now, I know it's corny, but there's an insight there because a lot of people think Bildad the shoe height is the smallest guy, but it's not true. (laughs) Or Nehemiah. But anyway, somebody stop me. Now, he says, I will take my stand on my watch post. Seriously, what does that mean? He says, look, my circumstances are really bad here, and I don't understand my circumstances, but I'll never understand everything. I, I know my circumstances, says, are true. It's just not the whole truth. Only God knows the whole truth, so I'm going to place myself in a, in a place where I will, I will understand the most truth. Now, in most cities, they would have a tower, and this is what he's referring to. the military tower, a military a soldier would go up to the tower and he would watch for the entire city. Uh, sometimes it would be about the weather, you know, bad weather coming up. But most of the time it would be about military powers coming against them. You know, they can, he can tell, well, this is a big army coming. Or this is just some friendly people coming to visit us, just a few horses riding up. He could tell what was going on, and therefore, he could see the bigger picture. And that's where, that's what he wants to do. He wants to go to his watch post and see things from a bigger point of view. And he's going to wait on this tower. Now, what about us? If we're going to go to the highest point, if we're going to go to the place where someone would possibly understand what's going on, where would we go? Well, Proverbs 18.10 says... The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Again, we don't get the point of suffering. We don't get what's going on. But just because something doesn't look like it has a point doesn't mean it doesn't have a point. Just because something looks pointless doesn't mean it is pointless. And Habakkuk was beginning to understand better his circumstances by clinging to what he already knew about God. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm like going to the watchtower... And I'm going to watch up there and get a perspective from God's point of view because I'm going to go into God and I'm going to try to see this world as he sees it. See, sometimes when we talk about that, can you have a worldview like Jesus? Could you have a biblical worldview? A biblical worldview is right and wrong, right and wrong. But also seeing the world the way God sees it gives you perspective. It causes you not to panic when things come up in life. It's, it's not just something facing right now before you. You get the bigger picture of what is happening in your life. And so Habakkuk wants to have a, a worldview to see things the way God is seeing them. And notice there he's standing. And, and this gives the picture of a soldier standing on duty. Now, some of you are from the military, and you know that when you have a watch post, when you, have, uh, when, when you are on watch... When, when you are on guard, people are depending on you. People are just depending on you. You know, soldiers are asleep in their barracks, and they're wanting to know they can trust you to keep an outlook for them because if you go to sleep on guard duty or you just simply, you know, no nothing's happening. I've, I've, I've sat out here and stood out here with my rifle. My goodness, night after night after night, nothing is ever going to happen anyway. I'm just going to go to sleep. No, you're, you're leaving your watch post to do what you want to do, and therefore you're letting a lot of people down. I, I've known people that say, "We well, you know, I'm just going to quit praying. I don't get anything out of prayer. Well, let me ask you this. How much are you going to get out of prayer if you don't pray? You know, Well, I'm just not going to go to church. Well, how much are you going to... I don't get anything out of... Well, how much are you going to get out of a church if you don't attend? If, how much are you going to get out of reading the Bible if you don't read the Bible? There's people around you that are depending on you to pray for them. Now, they may not say that, but there's probably people in your life, in my life, if I, you and I do not pray for them, nobody will. We are on watch. We, we need to, to stay on our watch and not leave our post. And one of the things that we need to realize about Habakkuk, as I mentioned last week, and the one thing I want to drill into you, that no matter how big his complaint was, and it was big, no matter how much complaining that he did, He never considered quitting, ever, because he knew where the truth was coming from. Well, as we look at this, I want us to look in verse 2, because as we look at verses 2 through 4, we find the heart, really, of the book. And he says this. God comes back and begins to talk to Habakkuk once again. He says, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Now he says this vision, he says, I want you to make it permanent, so I want you to write it down. I want you to make it plain so anyone could understand it, and I want you to make it public, a very public declaration to those in Israel that those who actually read it and understand it will run with it. That's what it means, to go with it, to run with it. And now he says, there is, he says, uh, in, in verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. Now in this, he says, there's an appointed time for this vision to come true. We will understand that Babylon would be conquered by the Persians in 538 B.C. And so they're going to have a reign, they're going to have a run, but it's not going to be a long run. And the Persians take over and conquer the Babylonians. So they get their, what's due to them. Then we find also in the scripture, that the Israelites, are many of them are left in Jerusalem and in the southern kingdom by Babylon. And now we find in the book of Daniel, we can find uh, things happening. And then finally in the book of Nehemiah in 445 BC, 445 years before the birth of Christ, we can find that they're coming back. Israel's coming back to the nation of Judah in the southern kingdom. In fact, let me just put you, put this into perspective for you. Many of us do not really read the book of Habakkuk very often, but many read the book of Daniel. You love the prophecy there. You love the story about Daniel the Lion's Den, the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace. Listen to what it says in verse one of chapter one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This was the prophecy. This is what was going to happen next. It would come. And the reign of Jehoiakim, an evil king before the Lord, in his third year of dragging the people down into further sin, God came along with the Babylonians to conquer them, to correct them, and to punish as well. Well, we look at this, and this appointed time, by the way, has something to do with Jesus coming. Most of the prophecies... In the Old Testament will either give you what usually give you what's going to happen right then, but they'll also give you a glimpse of what's going to happen in the future, either the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ. Here we find that they were talking about the first coming of Christ. When the, when the time is right. for still the vision awaits, it's appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not live, it seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come, and it will not delay. Wow, there's a greater insight here of the coming of Jesus Christ. Why was it an appointed time? Why was it just the perfect time for Jesus to come? It even says so in the Old Testament, when the the moment was just right. Well, we can understand a little bit of it, not all of it. But as we mentioned last week, when the Greeks came in and finally conquered uh, and had their day we find that the Greek language became the economic language of the day. And so when we refer to the New Testament, and I say the Greek word means this and the Greek word means that, the reason I'm saying that is because the New Testament was primarily written in Greek. It was the economic language that everyone could pretty much understand. So Jesus could come preaching one language. And then with Rome taking over from the Greeks, Rome adopted the Greek Greek culture and the Greek language, but there was peace everywhere. So Jesus and then later his disciples could walk through, travel through, sail through the kingdom without ever being impeded by war. It was the right time. God has a right time in your life. I don't know when that is, but the right time, how long do you have to wait? You have to wait as long as it takes for God to pull things together for your behalf and the behalf of of others as well. We see the way and we look at this and we see that God delivers in his perfect timing. So it gives us insight here on how we do it. And this is the most precious thing. How do we wait? I want you to notice first with humility. It says in verse four, behold his, again talking about Israel primarily, Judah, But also the Babylonians as well. Just mankind and how they go away from God. It says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Humility. How do we wait with humility? And why am I saying that when I wait on on God or wait on anything, especially on God, and he doesn't deliver when I want him to, why am I saying I'm not humble? Because what I'm saying is, God, I'm smarter than you. And God, I know what's right and the perfect timing and how this prayer ought to be answered, and I know how my life ought to go, and you're just not cooperating with me. Does anybody agree with me that that's not real humble, that I think I know the answers? Well, that's what we do, though. We say, okay, God, my life was supposed to be this way, and I've done what I needed to do, and none of us are sinless, and so we can't just say, well, God, I've been sinless and it should have worked out perfect for me. But nevertheless, we think, God, I don't deserve, this is what I deserve and this is the timing that I deserve it in. And i lost my job. God, that, that shouldn't have ever happened. Or God, this has happened to my um, adult child or this has happened to my, my dad or my mom. They should have lived longer. And what I'm saying is, God, I know, I know, I've got it all mapped out in my mind on how things ought to be right And they're not right. So he is saying to us, you come with humility and saying, God, you know best. God, no, this did not work. I'm disappointed. I'm I'm shell-shocked, and I'm going to be shell-shocked here for a couple of days. But, God, I know that it comes right down to the same thing. I, I can't quit because I know that you are ultimately in control. You are the God who is. James 1, James 4, rather, tells us, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. See, I know what's going on. I, I, don't, I know. No, you don't. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, and we don't. And so we don't know our circumstances. We don't know the future. We can't, even if we get the greatest perspective in the world, there's some mystery still there. So I don't know the timing of God, but I do know God. So the more we know then about God, the greater our capacity to detect to take what is coming in this world and to wait on Him. Number two, we take it with maturity. Notice he says, "I will take my stand back in, up in verse one, my watch post, my station on the tower, and look out to see what you say to me and what will answer concerning my what will answer concerning my complaint." He says, look, I I know God. I don't know everything, but I'm going to learn something from this. I'm going to see your perspective, and I'm going to learn from it. So we take it with personal maturity in mind. We don't quit. Quitting is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Sometimes, you know, the Bible even tells us, be still and know that I am God. One guy in the military tells a story about... um, getting his leg shot up. And they were on the battlefield, and there was no painkiller around, but they did have a doctor. And so he says, look, I have nothing to kill the pain. I'm going to open up your knee. I'm going to open up your leg here. But when I do, you can't move. If you move, I may sever a vein, a nerve. You have to stay still. That's what God's telling us. Look, there's maybe no painkiller around. But during this trial, you must stay still and not give up. Take it with maturity. James says again in chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brethren. Hard to do that, isn't it? When you fall into various trials, knowing this, the trying of your faith, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and lets steadfastness have its full effect That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that word, complete, perfect, but complete means mature in Christ. So thirdly, we also take it, again, with perspective. We need to look at the big picture of what's going on. Now, I said last week that the great thing about... God, one of the great things I've discovered here in just the last couple of years, because I used to say all the time, oh, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about me. But it is about us. Because because everything that happens to my children, my grandchildren, things that happen to you, things that happen to the church as a whole, my, my wife, my, my parent, my, my dad, all of these things affect my life in some way. And they affect your life in some way. All those things involved. Around you. And that means that that's how much God cares, that he would take every detail and use it in our life. But it also means that there's something bigger than us involved, something huge. Now, on the one hand, if I were to say, um, instead of, we we planned, by the way, over here in hospitality, right after uh, the service, come by and meet Pam and myself, my wife and I, we'd love to meet you. But say we just had nothing planned. Nothing. And I just said, folks, uh, I tell you what, after the service, I'm just going to wait down here. And if y'all want to say hello, come on down and say hello. That takes no planning. I can do that right now. But what we did yesterday, the Harvest Hoopla, we didn't just say, y'all show up. That took weeks of planning, months of planning. The Carrie Job concert that's coming up in a couple of weeks, we're not simply, oh, let's just turn on the lights and turn on the air. Make sure the AC's on at some point. You know, it doesn't matter when, just whenever we show up. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's clean or not. It doesn't matter whether they have tickets or not. Just show up. No, it, it's take, it takes weeks of planning that. Even for us, when we're having another team actually come in and do it. Things that are big just take time. And when they're taking time and God's working things around you, you don't know. You don't have that, that tower of perspective unless you're walking with God in a very close way. I was, uh, some of you are maybe involved in this right now, but you, you, know, you have teenagers and you, you pick up your children, at one of these um, young people, rather, at, at one of the schools. Maybe Oviedo High School. We, we used to have Oviedo High School and Jackson Heights Middle School. And when you pick them up in the afternoon, you have to wait on buses. You have to wait on a long line of cars. And if you don't get there early, man, you're waiting a long time. Now, it may be different today. I don't think so. I was going down the road. I was trying to pass through um, 426, about the time uh, uh, Jackson Heights was letting out, and I couldn't get by. The car line goes through the turning lane all the way down the road. You're going to wait a long time. Well, when we were picking up our um, uh, kids when they were uh, younger in middle school and high school, my wife usually would pick them up, and she would know that she was going to have to wait, and so she would rather wait in line in the beginning. So she would show up very early, and as soon as the, the kids get out, you know, they could pretty much see um, our uh, car and, and just go right to it. But on the other hand, sometimes I would pick them up. Different story. And I would wait kind of to the last minute because of things going on maybe, and I would show up. And I would have to wait in that long line. Well, such was the day. And my daughter, Lauren, had to wait for me to pick her up. And um, she was waiting, and I was in the car waiting and waiting and waiting, I guess trying to push my garage door open or I don't know. But anyway, we were, uh, I was waiting in the car, long line, very slow moving. She was also waiting on the curb, used to getting in right away and not today there was a girl standing right beside her, a girl that she was kind of a little bit afraid of. She was um, a little different, a little out there. And uh, she just thought to herself, you know, she was always kind of a little bit scared. She saw her in school and class and never really spoke to her. But she turned to her and she said, you know, God, I got I to say something. So she turned to her and started talking to her. And they got in a conversation. And they probably had to wait 15 minutes at least on me, and the girl was gone by then. And... Um, Lauren just got in the car, really didn't say much about it, because what she she did was talk to her. They laughed and cut up a little bit, and she invited her to church. Well, she invited a lot of people to church, just like you invite a lot of people to church, and they don't always come. And so she really didn't think too much about that. She was just glad that she had a chance to kind of break things down and at least talk to her. Well, the girl showed up at church. She showed up on Wednesday night, and she started coming to church, and she received Christ. And... After she received Christ, she started growing. In fact, last I heard, she was married, still growing in the Lord, still active in church. But what she told Lauren afterwards, she said, my life was so defeated and I was so down and so depressed, I didn't feel like I had a friend in the world. I was planning to go home that day and take my life. I had it all planned out how I was going to commit suicide. But because you spoke to me, I decided I'll wait and give God a shot. You don't know what you're waiting on. You don't know why you're waiting. You don't know what God's doing. You don't know who he's bringing into your life and who you can affect. Have the right perspective, but then then also with faithfulness. Now, it says here, wait for the Lord. He will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is not puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. This is one of the most famous sayings on all the Bible. In fact, it's requoted in Romans 1:17. Paul says it again in Galatians chapter 3 verse 11. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews quotes it as well in chapter 10, verse 38, "The righteous will live by faith." Now this word has two meanings: faithfulness and faith, and they both in, are intertwined together. And it says, "We need to live with faithfulness. You're going to eventually receive. You say, I'm I'm just tired of waiting. I I, I just don't pray anymore because I'm tired that every time I pray, I don't get anything. Well, how much are you going to get when you don't pray? You know? What's going to happen in your life then? And over and over and over again, this is it. This is a, a big, huge lesson of the book of Habakkuk. If you don't wait, you won't receive it at all. But if you wait, you'll eventually get it. If you don't wait, you'll never receive what was promised. There's just no hope in doing that. If you do wait, you may have to wait a long time, but you'll eventually receive what was promised." Hebrews 10:36. "You wait with faithfulness, with tenacity, but then you wait with trust. Verse four again, "The righteous shall live by faith." Here's what he's contrasting. He's saying, "The arrogant. And he says in verse 4, the puffed-up soul, on the one hand, trusts in himself. He trusts in what he can do. He believes in himself, but his self lets him down. And he doesn't trust in God. And when he sees the circumstances go so bad, what does he do? He keeps his eye on the circumstances. He goes by what he's seeing, what he's hearing, what he's experiencing. And because of that, it all relies on him or somebody else. Somebody else is getting in his way. Somebody else is talking about it. Somebody else is getting promoted ahead of him. Somebody else is is hurting his, his kids because they weren't picked on a certain team. It's always something else or even themselves because they're just looking to that one way. Because after all, they know. They know exactly how life ought to go. On the other hand, the righteous one, the one who follows God, will live by what he knows about God and trust it. And that's why the more you know, again, the more you know about God, the more you can trust Him. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, um, unfortunately, we don't see stories completed all the time. And the reason why we don't see them completed is because they're completed in the New Testament. Who is the righteous one? The Bible says in Galatians that there's no way you can, there's no righteousness of your own. Romans says the same thing book of Romans. But here's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. The apostle Paul, who was struggling through a lot of the things that you and I have struggled through, says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified, that means to be declared righteous, declared not guilty. How can we do that? He explains that in the first four chapters of the book of Romans when he says that we have no righteousness of our own. We are all sinners separated from God. That's why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. It was the cross that brings things together and makes sense out of life. It is as we climb that tower and get close to God, then we realize it's the cross. John Stott in one of his books says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, I could uh, one worship I, I could not worship a God who is immune to the pain. I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to a lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet. Back lacerated. Wrenched. Brow bleeding from thorns, pricks. Mouth dry and intolerable thirsty. Plunged into God forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He has laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings became more man- manageable in light of this. There is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark. The mark of the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. You wait on the Lord, you receive the promise. You quit, you'll never receive the promise. Now, Habakkuk is going to be reaching the conclusion through the book that even though things seem bad here, I don't understand my circumstances here, why, doesn't some, why are people making the wrong decisions over here? He said, in spite of human choices, God is somehow sovereign and has a divine plan all his own and will accomplish it. And he says, I can trust that. I can trust him. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, if you've never come to the place in your life Well, you've truly trusted Jesus Christ. I'm talking about different different, uh, words that you can use for it. You've never been saved. You've never been born again. You've never become a follower of Christ. They all mean the same thing. You've never really received him in your life, confessing your sins. I want to challenge you to do that right now. I want to challenge you to go to the tower and be the watchman on the wall the watchman in the tower, saying, I can see it now, perspective. I can see it. Do you want to see it? Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.